Welcome to the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast, where we discuss the law and its implications on our relationships, our markets, and our futures. I'm Siobhan. I'm Bianca. And we are your hosts for this series. Today, we'll be speaking with Professor Samuel Moyne to discuss his extensive scholarship on the history of human rights. Professor Moyne is Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and Professor of History at Yale University. He has written several books on human rights history, including Christian Human Rights and Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. His most recent work, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War, is deeply thought-provoking and has received widespread acclaim. Professor Moyne, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a real honour to have you on our podcast. Let's begin our discussion with your work on the history of human rights. You've written that human rights achieved contemporary prominence rather recently in the 1970s. Could you speak about what preceded this, what took so long, and what explains the emergence of human rights in the 1970s? Well, first off, it's a privilege to be invited. You know. In my sense of things, um, there are lots of ethical systems in human history and therefore legal systems. And in fact, there have been a lot of different uh, universalistic such systems. Um, And human rights is universalistic. It purports to cover everyone everywhere and always, but it, it did emerge as far as I can see relatively recently. Now, I, I concede and insist that the idea of a, a right, uh, an individual entitlement that you or I might hold in virtue of our humanity is old. Um, it might be medieval, it might be earlier, probably later. Um, but as I, as I see it, the, that idea only became politicized in, in two great moments. And I, I've stressed in my work that they, they kind of had an opposite thrust. The first was in the era of the Atlantic revolutions, uh, which you know other places in the world copied first Latin America and eventually in the middle of the 20th century, the whole uh, formerly colonial world. And in that moment, rights, universal rights, natural rights, the rights of man, human rights are a justification for revolution and state building, the construction of sovereignty, including with the tools of violence if necessary. Uh, And that just seems different from the kind of thing human rights involve now. Now, the concept could be the same at a certain level of abstraction, but the political and legal project linked to it is no longer statehood, citizenship, constitution making, uh, uh, but rather some something else. Um, and it's that um, kind of novelty uh, that I have stressed in my work in, in the 1970s. So first, what was the novelty? It's true there was a Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 propounded by the United Nations, but um, it, it seems as if almost no one noticed uh, and there were no human rights movements as such. 
and so we're somehow waiting for a later period when you get a couple of novelties um, that we continue to associate with human rights. One is what I would call internationalization. Um, rights can still be asserted for the sake of uh, our, our fellow citizens or ourselves in relation to our fellow citizens, but they there really is a campaign to construct an international legal order that's based on rights. Um, and then there's mobilization that's nonviolent that involves naming, shaming, lawsuits. The, these are very different than revolutionary activity. And, you know, my sense is that Th this is a a switch in in what it meant for to be for human rights, um, and indeed in most languages, this moment in the 1970s is when most uh, most languages show the, the 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 phrase for human rights spiking. Why did it happen then? I'll, I'll give two big reasons. Um, one was decolonization. Uh, in that first model of human rights, revolutionary human rights, um, the emphasis was on sovereignty in the state, not super sovereign norms confining and sometimes interfering with sovereignty. And when there was an enormous violence in the American Revolution with the expulsion of tens of thousands of so-called loyalists or in the French Revolution, uh, no one set up the United Nations or... Um, you know, propounded an international human rights treaty. My sense is that um, when new peoples, non-white peoples, claimed and won sovereignty, there was a there was perceived to be a new governance problem uh, in, in not being able to reassert empire, but um, seeing uh, them not rule themselves very well and sometimes brutally from the perspective of the global north which is where the human rights movement really was born um and then there was this something else that happened the second big reason i would cite which is the the decline of socialism it's quite striking that you know most people through the 1930s through 70s um who think of some renovation nationally or internationally on on in progressive terms think in socialist frames um and you know in in the first instance they're seeking a welfare state um uh, or sometimes they might seek a kind of progressive internationalism it's not that rights weren't all that central to that kind of internationalism but there was still a of fundamental concern with distributive justice. Well, when human rights surge, um, amazingly, the second half of the list of rights in the Universal Declaration, which do concern um, economic and social matters, drop out. Amnesty International, the first great human rights organization, uh, is focused on um, unjust imprisonment, a little later on torture, a little later than that on the death penalty. Only after or around the millennium, really, did it take on board poverty. And and the global northern NGOs, as they're being founded, are all about civil liberties. Um, and so I, I see that as a loss of ambition. And it 
would have to kind of get into more detail if you want, but um, there's some there's some way in which human rights are a kind of minimalist successor to the socialist project. Um, and so in combination with decolonization, the, that factor matters a lot in, in thinking about the timing. You've written that there existed an inverse relationship between the popularization of socialist rhetoric and human rights rhetoric. What's behind this inverse relationship? So, you know, it, it, in my sense, there was a, a, a collapse in the prestige of socialism, partly because socialism um, failed in, in its state form in, in Eastern Europe and Maoist China, for that matter, um, and was not seen to be able to kind of deliver the goods. Um, and I think psychologically and even spiritually, it was of the essence that at the time human rights began to gain traction in the 1970s, that there, there was a sense that um, programmatic ambition would fail. Um, you know, there were slogans of this kind, like if we, you know, try to build utopia, we end up building, you know, uh, the gulag instead. And human rights were presented, including by some of their own partisans, like dissident uh, thinkers, uh, as non-political, as a kind of moral creed that wouldn't fail. Um, so I've called human rights the god that didn't fail or wouldn't fail because, you know, people were depressed about the the possibilities of socialism. There was also the fact that, you know, some of the central actors were East European and, and they'd actually tried to redeem socialism, build what some called socialism with a human face, but the Soviets wouldn't permit it. Uh, most famously in the Prague Spring of 1968, when Salvador Allende in Chile wanted to build socialism with a, within a democracy, my country wouldn't permit it. So it was as if in the Cold War, there, there was no feasible um, alternative. Uh, and so human rights emerged as a kind of non-political creed. And you know, that, that is, is principally, um, you know, what I've argued. I'm not suggesting that human rights were anti-socialistic. I, I think it's rather that, that they took up a space that had been occupied by socialism and they, they could distinguish themselves from some of the features that people associated with kind of the reasons why socialism might always fail. Um, and I, so it was a kind of successor ideology that, that was, was, was appealing to a lot of people because it, it, it didn't have some of the same ambitions and didn't have some of the same, in a certain sense, political aspirations as socialism. It merely was critical of power, never, um, you know, never risked the the excesses of power once you you know take it up and try to build with it
You've also explored the relationship between human rights and Christianity, uh, most notably in your book, Christian Human Rights. So how would you characterize the relationship between human rights and Christianity? And in particular, how would you respond to those who either deny any relation between human rights and Christianity or claim that human rights derive their origin from the theological um, axioms of the equality of persons under God, for instance? Right. So, you know, Christianity is one of those universalistic ethical schemes I mentioned that litter world history. Um, and I don't see any good sources there. I mean, it's it may be true that Christianity has a, an enormous effect on the possibility of thinking that humans are moral equals. But Christianity was, Jesus's message was not a political doctrine. Indeed, Jesus, Paul, other early Christians thought they were preparing people for the world's ending. Um, and uh, I think there's just too much commitment to um, a kind of hierarchical world in, in political terms, in Christian traditions, to make it a very credible candidate. Now, we could say somehow for political modernity, when people become political equals, we need some story about Christian origins, and that's true, but it would have to be one that emphasizes how um, equality is, in a sense, rescued from Christianity for the sake of political equality. Um, furthermore, there's no kind of serious um, Christian kind of politics of rights before a certain period. And when you get the French Revolution, the Catholic Church in particular um, responded in horror because, you know, in fairness, it had its land seized in France and sort of declared war on the whole idea of rights for about a century. Um, I also think that, you know, today, human rights are basically the project of a, a secular progressive international. But there was this very interesting period in the middle, um, in between the period when Christians took their distance from human rights on the grounds that they were associated with kind of secular liberal um, French revolutionary wildfire um, and our time when they're more the kind of creed of the chastened left. Um, and it was in the middle of the 20th century when I, at least I was surprised to find that many post-fascist Christians could reclaim human rights um, for their own vision of local and global order. Now remember, this is precisely the period, say, in the 1940s, when the left is socialistic. It hasn't, it hasn't made the move to the kind of global human rights idiom that, you know, it, it, has, it has successfully claimed. The, the right has um, bet on fascism and it's, it's failed them, you know, there were a couple far-right regimes like in Austria and Portugal, but those were pretty dependent on kind of the kind of secular right in Europe, and those governments were beaten in World War II. And what you find some Christians saying after World War II is, we made a mistake. 
um, we care about moral community, um, but what what we need to care about as as much as that is the limitation of states, um, especially when they're kind of led by the secular. Um, that could be secular liberals, but also secular um, communists or fascists, the ones that they kind of wondered if if they should you know, join for a while there. And so uh, you find that most of those who enthuse about human rights in the 1940s are um, center-right Christians who are, have kind of corrected their mistakes uh, of, the, of the fascist period and think of human rights as a kind of happy medium between um, a, a form of, of Christianity that is... Um, it is it, it, it can 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 do without liberalism and a, a, a form that embraces it so much that it it kind of loses its soul and so i pr- try to present a lot of evidence that uh, some of the leading proponents of human rights really did think about um human rights as a kind of kind of intermediate position that would save them from the totalitarianism, but also the kind of secularism of the liberal tradition. And actually going back to earlier in your answer, when you made a distinction between moral equality and political equality, I'm wondering if you could explain it a bit further, because I personally was quite intrigued by it. As far as I can tell, I mean, you you can gain from some of these um, early monotheistic traditions, the idea that human beings are created in the image of God. Um, and in Christianity, they are all valuable. Even, you know, those Jesus calls the least of these, you know, the poor, you know, final, following a kind of Jewish tradition of concern for the widow and the orphan. And this is just very different from the kind of dominant moral conception and world history, which was one about kind of martial honor and, you know, kind of male distinction and aristocratic greatness that was bound up with ideologies of war. Um, And Christianity overthrew those earlier hierarchical notions. Um, But it was for the sake of saying y- you you have a chance to be saved for the next life it it had no immediate political implications certainly not egalitarian ones and you know christianity proved as compatible with things like kingship and aristocracy and feudalism as any other uh any other kind of ethics so somehow we have to explain how out of a Christian civilization in the West grew up the possibility of something like the American or especially French Revolution. And that is just a big challenge. Um, I don't want to purport to solve it on this podcast. I just want to suggest that there's not an easy um, connection to draw from Christianity to modern human rights because um, we have to explain how 
equality became a political conception that indeed could allow for the overthrow of monarchy or the departure from empire, uh, which Americans did, and that became fateful for the whole world, Christian or non-Christian. You argue that human rights, while important, are not enough. And in particular, you point to how the way in which the human rights movement has primarily focused on sufficient provision um, and thus losing sight of considerations like hierarchy, economic inequality and fairness overall. So what explains this preoccupation with sufficient provision? A couple of things. First, as I argued before, human rights emerge as a kind of minimalist creed. And the idea is basically to um, do something that is morally uncontroversial, not something that's politically explosive. And so for a long time, actually, human rights movements ignore distribution distribution at all, completely, as I mentioned, focusing on free speech, torture, etc. Um, even when they take up kind of um, economic and social rights, which were, you know, in, in a different guise um, there in the Universal Dec- Declaration, human rights movements focus on what you um, rightly call sufficient provision, which is to say um, determining an uncontroversial line um, uh, or threshold of um, the provision of some good or service, food, healthcare, et cetera, um, that is similarly uncontroversial um, to free speech. Um, Whatever else you believe, the claim goes, everyone has a right to at least that much of whatever the the good or service is. Um, And so... Th- that 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 partly can be explained as an outgrowth of of this minimalist um, ap- approach that has been pretty you know definitional of human rights from the beginning um, in in its second or new phase. But then I would add a, a, another reason, which is that you know it, it seems as if you know you want to face distributive injustice it would be natural to say, well, let's focus on the worst off and the deprivation uh, that is is not relative. That's to say the the relationship between some and those who have more as like an, an, an injustice in itself, but instead focus on absolute deprivation on those who have nothing, or very little and have not been given um, or allowed to have, you know, just a basic modicum of whatever the good or service is. And, and indeed, you might argue that we should, we should as for moral reasons, focus um, at least first on such deprivation. I mean, you could argue we should never do anything other in general, other than first make sure that the last African child doesn't starve to death who is hungry. Um, and obviously we're not doing that, but you know, one could argue that you should and just postpone everything else, including the, a kind of concern not for sufficient provision, but for what we can call equal distribution. So you know, my take is that's a really powerful argument, but 
we, um, I think we've learned that we have to take a lot of other considerations seriously beyond sufficient provision for moral reasons. We can get into why that is. Um, I think socialists did, and it reflected their ambition, not just their kind of a, a different moral view that they said, okay, sufficient provision matters, but so does kind of distributive fairness generally. Um, and we can build a society in which we get both of those things. Um, they weren't content to kind of start with poverty and never get anywhere else. Um, and I think we should return to their ambition, both, you know, for political reasons, but also because I think we can make a moral case that um, they're, they're, we, we shouldn't have to postpone all other agendas until um, there's sufficient provision, not least because in our time, there's there, there are more and more people who are exiting poverty, even as inequality increases. And if we don't face inequality, we kind of can remedy poverty even while seeing or, you know, if, if not contributing to the aggravation of inequality. I guess the trouble most people would have with envisioning that alternative reality may be that historically we haven't developed in this way. And so the historical his experience has been that generally socialist projects have not been perceived to have been as successful as capitalist projects. So to what extent do you think sufficient provision is just inherent to the notion of human rights? Um, could you say it is a necessary stepping stone to a fuller, more complete conception of human rights? There were projects, notably ones that I kind of have grouped under the category of the welfare state that did succeed, not just in alleviating some forms of poverty, but in narrowing uh, distributive inequality. And in fact, I, I try to argue in my book, Not Enough, that we should think of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights much more as a kind of charter for that kind of project, even though it only mentions e economic and social rights in a kind of sufficiency frame. It 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 kind of breathed the 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 atmosphere or spirit of the age in which it was propounded when it was kind of a charter for welfare states for each people to strive beyond even those economic and social rights for some kind of fair distribution and it happened so we know that for most of the 19th century you have uh, constantly expanding inequality domestic and global uh, but then from the 1940s through 70s, you have constrained inequality at the domestic level in many places before it exploded again. Now, human rights are a global project, and it's only fair to note that uh, global inequality has uh, kind of continued to expand during the very era of the welfare state. Um, and I, I write a lot about how some dreamed of a kind of welfare world during the decolonizing period um, because the constraint on inequality welfare states had successfully introduced locally deserved to be global too and not have decolonization involve even more 
inequality between North and South than before, which it did. Actually, our age, the neoliberal one, is one which is very interesting because it seems to involve less poverty, more domestic inequality, but less global inequality. So we could talk about the details, but um, that's, if you want an argument for um, capitalism in your word, I don't, I try not to use that word, um, but for uh, for a certain form of non-socialist politics, because it, it seems to produce in our world some better or moderation of global inequality. The trouble is that along with the reduction in poverty, it seems to be producing crises of inequality within each um, state. Um, you know, beyond that, I mean, I think socialism is, you know, a a word in search of, you know, our, our definition of it. And there were certainly state socialist projects that failed spectacularly, but social democratic um, forms of socialism have succeeded, continue to do so where they've left a legacy, like in some Nordic countries, the United Kingdom, uh, and, and elsewhere around the globe. And capitalism, as in your word, it's not as if a, a lot of people haven't died under its watch, starting with the origins of the modern world and colonialism and slavery and proceeding through the Cold War with millions, you know, littering the, you know, the, the, the stage of world history as, as really as the capitalist countries engaged in very scurrilous activity. So um, I think we should kind of like figure out what, what we think is fair and what, what we think we ought to strive for um, and not point to some perfect system that exists anywhere or existed in the past because it seems like the reverse. History is about a lot of failure. More broadly, why has the rise of human rights occurred alongside rampant economic inequality? So, you know, I have a very simple model of this. It's it's a kind of non-conspiratorial model that you find in some Marxist accounts of human rights, notably like Jessica White's uh, excellent book, The Morals of the Market. Um, I think that um, for the reasons I described before, human rights could survive in a neoliberal age. Um, uh, socialism had to die. It 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 was targeted by uh, neoliberalism, but human rights wasn't. Um, and you could think of it um, in the following way: human rights was devoted, if to any distributive justice at all, to floors of sufficient provision. Meanwhile, neoliberals were trying to obliterate the ceilings on distributional inequality that the welfare state had built, and it succeeded. So it's, if you like, it's what we call, when we look at children, parallel play. Human rights are working on getting people um, out of the worst kind of destitution uh, uh, and building a floor of protection where, where inequality is about destroying the ceiling 
And you could imagine both of these things happening at the same time. One needn't threaten the other. In fact, uh, it, human rights, like poverty remediation more generally, could make us think that we're ethical and living in an incredibly ethical time. Uh, and many say that, you know, like Steven Pinker um, or others who say it's the best time to be alive on grounds of poverty mediation, remediation, leaving out the, you know, obscene rises in inequality. Um, but I wouldn't go further than that and say that human rights are to blame for inequality. That seems absurd. Um, it does seem that they're working on a different problem and that if we care about inequality, we need something other than human rights movements and law. Um, and the sense that I got from your work is that as much as the human rights movement claims to be universal and all-encompassing, um, in actuality, they cannot operate palliatively and selectively. Um, and for instance, you talk about how human rights gives us the vocabulary to talk about racial and gender inequality or equality, but not in relation to income or wealth. And I guess in our very limited um, exposure to human rights law um, with the Human Rights Act in the UK, it really does seem like that. So I'm wondering why this is the case. Well, okay, so to begin with, all action is selective. Um, to get out of bed, you know, we have to get out on one side rather than the other. And, you know, we plan the day forsaking a lot of different opportunities. You know, you're doing this podcast instead of something better or worse, you decide. Um, you know, I, I think... What, what we should care about is um, what is getting lost and always have a sense of like what we could do instead or what we're missing in our own lives, but also in formulating social justice. It's not like it's ever going to not be selective, um, but we can try to incorporate things that have gotten lost. And I, I do think it's, I do think it's unfortunate that human rights have, been formulated uh, as if they were kind of um, the central cause of social justice, even when they're so selective. So I've just been trying to say, look at all these other things that are getting lost in the age of human rights. Not that we don't need human rights movements, but we need a lot of other um, similarly selective movements and legal regimes. And one of those is is challenging not just, you know, what I call status inequality, um, unequal treatment on because of the kind of body you have, racial, gendered, sexual orientation, et cetera, um, and instead distributive inequality. Like what do you get in virtue of being um, a citizen or a human? That seems, um, you know, inadequately addressed by human rights because all it says is you should get enough of these basic you know goods and services not an equal share or a fair share and do you think it's possible to construct um, a truly universal conception of human rights or will its focus and definition always be dependent on prevailing social conditions and the political elite who wield the power to define it. And I think in particular, you've talked about the Muslim hijab controversies in Europe and how, um, right. you know, for whatever reason, the European Court of Human Rights doesn't really 
protect um, Muslim women who want to don the hijab. Um, so I'm wondering if it's always going to be prevailing social conditions and people who wield power, who can decide who, who actually really gets the protection of human rights. Um, I'm sure, I, you know, I think that's true of any prevailing morality when it's, it's enforced by powerful people uh, or even weak people, they're going to make ideologically inflected choices. And, you know, we can monitor those, we can police those. I, I want to resist an account that would, um, you know, say the main problem with human rights are that they're Western or morally parochial. Um, I think they're one universalism among many other, you know, possible ones. Um, and that we should think that um, they have a lot of credibility. It's just that they're selective in the way we've discussed. Um, now, if they're applied in a way like starting with some norm of religious freedom that you and I might think is hard to argue against, um, but it turns out that, you know, Christians can build massive cathedrals and make the public space Christian where individual Muslims can't wear various forms of garb deemed offensive to those Christians, you know, then it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it is a case in which human rights have been um, made um, kind of parochial through the ideological um, kind of predisposition of those interpreting and enforcing them. But that's very different from saying that human rights are necessarily kind of local or provincial. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's a very useful way of going about things because what impresses me more is just how many candidates there are in world history from the West, from the East, from the North, from the South for kind of, um, for being universal frameworks. And some have spread really far. You know, think about um, Buddhism or Islam. You know, they're, they're no, no longer associated with any one place. And that's because they've been successful ways of kind of interpreting human experience and existence. And I think human rights are like that. Um, and I, I happen to find them credible enough. It's that they're, you know, selective and, and we need other, other universalisms to add to human rights. Turning now to your book, Humane, I'm aware that in your book, you discuss how efforts to make war more humane may only serve to make it more endless. Could you speak about the recent American withdrawal from Afghanistan and how you situate it against the broader trend or trends in American warfare that you've identified? So the book is, is an attempt to look not at human rights law, but at, at, at so-called international humanitarian law, the, the laws of war and their history. And I do locate, though, a similar kind of mutation era in the 1960s and 70s. Before that period, as far as I can see, um, it's almost never the case that the, the content of the laws of war is is very humane in in kind of in in spirit it's actually very permissive states make the laws of war for 
for for the sake of making their violence easier um then they just exclude a lot of people for centuries um including once you get kind of the mature laws of war um largely because they're kind of colonial racialized enemies who don't even deserve the kind of very permissive laws of war that um, are devised first for transatlantic whites. Finally, when push comes to shove, even for those um, whites, like in World War One, the laws of war are ignored. So, you know, something big happens um, both to make the kind of rules themselves more humane in spirit. So you could think of today's proportionality rule that prohibits like excess collateral damage. That's new. Um, the laws of war have to apply um, when whites are fighting non-whites, you know, which historically they didn't like in, you know, under empire or during decolonization. And then finally, they have to actually be taken seriously in the course of real conflict. And all three of these things happen after the 1960s and, and 70s. And it's, it's good, but my argument is that it creates a new risk, which is that to the extent that you can say that you're fighting morally, it will be easier for you to sustain fighting. And it's not like that's a necessary risk, um, like that everyone incurs it, but that my country and great powers generally have done so. Um, and I try to present a lot of evidence that um, advocates and audiences kind of accept a, a compromise to, to give up anti-war pressure and make uh, or allow their politicians to make war morally fought, um, even when the price potentially is that it's extended in time and expanded in space. So that's basically the argument of my new book. You know, I take the withdrawal from Afghanistan as, you know, I don't want to trivialize it too much, but it it kind of allows for a a big transition in the war on terror to be seen more clearly. Actually, that transition began long ago when the invasions conducted by my country of Afghanistan and Iraq started not to go very well. Um, and uh, new forms of belligerence were kind of, uh, you know, ex made experiments. Um, so as troops were withdrawn starting long ago in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, armed drones and special forces were used much more regularly and in more places. Um, and so Joe Biden kind of just, you know, wrote the postscript to that development by taking the last few troops out of Afghanistan. No, it is a big deal that Afghanistan then fell very quickly. But from the perspective of American might, it was long ago the case that there were very few troops deployed. Rather, there these new capabilities uh, came online, drones and special forces. And the fact that there are going to be new terrorist threats seen to emanate from Afghanistan under Taliban rule um, 
means that there'll be more of that sort of counter-terrorist, you know, effort, not less, along with, you know, this enormous surveillance power that has become normal during the war on terror. So these things um, seem to me permanent uh, unless we fight them. Uh, And it's sad that we've allowed politicians to kind of make showy withdrawals of, let's say, vestigial forms of war, even as they've increasingly pioneered new forms of war that though they may be more humane and, you know, conducted with some legal consciousness of limits, don't have limits in time and don't have limits in space and perpetuate domination. That was Professor Samuel Moyne speaking with us on human rights. For more interesting legal discussions and writings, visit the OUULJ's blog and read our annual publications. Once again, thank you for joining us on this episode.